What's up, fantasy nerds? Welcome back to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And today, for episode 85, I am 99% certain it is, Drew and I are discussing part two of Words of Radiance. You know the drill, if you've made it this far. I'm rather excited to start, as this part contains one of my favorite Sanderson moments ever, I'd say. So, let's kick things off. Drew, give us a recap, would you? Alright. Before I do that, just need to open my, my yeah. drink here. This is typically where I do so as well. <laughs> yeah, so we picked up with the first set of interludes in Words of Radiance. And uh, there were four interludes in this portion, which is something we'll talk about a little later on. Uh, but it starts off with an Eshonai interlude, and then we have Yim, the cobbler, who is uh, killed by a mysterious person, a, a man in a uniform who seems to be bent on exacting decades-old judgment on Yim. And then we go back to Risen, uh, our first repeat uh, character from Way of Kings interludes. And she is off on a, an important trading mission. Uh, Vistim, her Babsk, is deathly ill. And so she needs to go close a trade for him in the Reshi Isles, where uh, she finds out that the Isles themselves are actually great shells who rove around in, in the Reshi Sea. She climbs up, you know, to the top of the great shell, to the head, passing our old friend Axies the Collector on the way. And she finds out that the Reshi will not trade with her, that even though she impressed them, they're going to send her back to Vistim because uh, she needs to have a lot more experience and gain their respect before they'll trade with her. So she does something very rash and uh, climbs down a rope in front of the head of the Great Shell and ends up falling all the way down, hits the water, and is paralyzed from the waist down. Destroys her legs, she can't walk anymore. But, in so doing, she earned the respect of not the Reshi, but from the island itself, the Great Shell, and the Great Shell told the Reshi to give her a gift. And that gift was a tiny little Kremlin called a Larkin. And I'm sure that won't be important ever again. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then from there, we went back to uh, Eshonai for another interlude where, uh, you know, the first one was kind of her going around Narak, the, the city in the middle of the sh uh, Shattered Plains where the Parshendi have posted up, where the listeners, as they call themselves. And in the second one, we find out that her sister Venli is... Uh, doing some, some uh, sketchy stuff. Research, yeah, yeah, and and has potentially discovered a new form of power for the Parshendi to use, and Eshenai forces them to give her time to uh, parlay with Dalinar, and that if they do decide to try it out, that Eshenai herself will be the first one to bond with a a Spren to try out Stormform. So not you know nothing big not not a not a dark chapter at all, um, and then from there we we go back to our main characters. Uh, part two follows a lot of Shalon and Kaladin and a little bit of uh, Adeline, 
uh, Shalon is with her, you know, little caravan, her slave caravan with Tavlakiv, whom readers may remember from the Way of Kings as the slave master who sold Kaladin to Sadius in the war camps. Uh, as they are traveling toward the Shattered Plains, they discover that there are uh, deserters, bandits, chasing after them. And they head toward a fire they see in the distance, hoping to uh, get some help there. But they find out that there's another set of bandits attacking another caravan there. And Shalon pulls a fast one. She convinces the deserters behind them to help her defeat the bandits attacking the caravan. And they all three groups kind of join up there. And she meets a woman named Tin, who's a con artist, and sort of takes Shalon under her wing... Uh, training her up to become her, her kind of con sidekick because she doesn't believe Shalon is Shalon Davar. But as they're having dinner at one point, uh, Tin has a span read giving her information on things around the world, including, uh, uh, shall we say, her previous job, which was, in fact, setting up the operation to kill Yasna aboard the Wind's Pleasure. And in in so doing, she discovers that Shalon is Shalon, and she's about to kill Shalon, but instead, Shalon summons her shard blade that has been foreshadowed since the early pages of The Way of Kings, and kills Tin. And uh, they're, they're left about a day, you know, maybe half a day out from the Shattered Plains at that point. But before we wrap up with Shalon there... She finds out Tin has been working for the Ghostblood specifically, and they want to meet up with Tin. They don't know she's dead, and Shalon says she will meet them. And that's where part two ends. But we also had Kaladin and Adeline. And a lot of this portion for, for them was, you know, training and, and just setting up the... Uh, continuing to set up the dynamic on the Shattered Plains now. But uh, we see another assassination attempt on King Elokar, and there's some weirdness going on there. Uh, where they realize that somebody had to have had a shard blade to do it, and it had to have been uh, after the high storm hit, and that really narrows down uh, what could have happened. And so Kaladin has to talk to Moash about it, because Moash was the only one who went out on the, the balcony after the high storm hit. But before we can really get into that whole thing, the assassin in white shows up again makes another appearance here to kill Dalinar at the order of King Teravangian. And Kaladin fights him off. Kaladin has his arm kind of struck with the shard blade and killed, but heals it with Stormlight. And when Zeth sees this, Zeth is shocked and cannot believe that Kaladin is a Windrunner and uh, runs away. <laughs> well, so He done fly away. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, flies away. Runs away, so to speak. <laughs> he wind but runs yeah, away. So, so that's uh, that's where we are left at the end of part two. Yeah, yeah, not a lot happening. Just you know, all of that. It's uh, God, there's so much happening. You know, and I, I jumping straight into style as we normally do once we get your recap there. You know, st starting right off the bat with the epigraphs. I'm gonna admit mm -hmm. this time around, I'm not a huge fan of these particular epigraphs. These excerpts from the Parshendi slash listeners old songs. I mean, yeah, some of them do sound pretty badass, to be sure. I particularly love the epigraphs for chapters 24 and 31. 
those sound, at least to me, properly lyrical. They're chilling. But as for the rest, the, 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 the rhythm, they don't really, like, flow for me. I kind of just read them like poetry. There's a lot of world building and, and plenty of juicy goodies hidden in these. But still, as, for me, these kind of just fall at the bottom of my list for Sanderson epigraphs. He's got such an excellent record with those by this point that, for me, th these ones kind of fell flat. What about you? You know, I agree with you. Thank you. I, I just... Eh, they don't do it for me. I think part of it is that uh, I have read so many authors who have worked in poetry and music and written poetry and music for their epic fantasies who do it way better than Brandon Sanderson does. Brandon Sanderson is not a poet. <laughs> These are, you know, little snippets of poems and songs, but they're, they're just not that good. Uh, the the meter isn't isn't that great. The there's some pretty forced slant rhymes at points. Um, I mean, when I compare it to things like the verses of uh, "Dance with Jack of the Shadows" and "The Wheel of Time," or you know some of the the snippets we get of songs in "The Name of the Wind" or uh, the songs Tolkien wrote in "Lord of the Rings." It, this this just doesn't do it. <laughs> yeah, it, it almost feels to me like when going into writing the, the epigraphs, which as far as I understand, I think Sanderson does after the books themselves are written, uh, the books proper are written. Uh, it seems to me like perhaps, if I may venture a guess, during this part he just wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do for part two. We have excellent epigraphs in part one. We have excellent epigraphs for parts three, four, and five. I, I cannot wait to talk about these ones going forward. But for part two, it just felt like to me he just wasn't quite, maybe quite certain what to do for these ones. And so, you know, a little, we're, we're starting to get to know the Parshendi a little bit. We've met Eshenai, we've met Venli. Uh, we're, we're on first name basis with those right away, but it, it I don't know, it just, these ones are, I just want to say these are not my favorite. And I, I th I'm pretty sure I've heard this, you know, um, throughout the rest of the fandom as well in some other ways. Like, I've heard other people complaining, say, these ones aren't, ah, I wish we had done something else with these. And I, I, I'm kind of on board with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't know if I'd fully agree that it felt like he didn't know what to do with them because yeah, I, I do think Completely these are guessing. these are uh, intentional. I, I mean, he he really needs to build the Parshendi culture, the listener culture, in you know uh, in this book especially because this is when we start getting Eshenai points of view and we start seeing. You know the more complicated, uh, you know the just the more complicated setup of uh, the cultures I, in this yeah. world. I, I imagine it's hard to give us a lot of uh, context on the Parshendi without bringing this book over the five hundred thousand word point. Eh? I mean, it, it's necessary, but I just don't. I just didn't love it. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I I did want to point out though with um, the epigraphs in this part. I I was surprised because in the other books, part two epigraphs have been 
Yeah, yeah, in books one and three. Well, I guess that's kind of a... Is that a spoiler? It's kind of a spoiler. I'll, I'll bleep that. Yeah, but there there's a pattern there, and, and Words of Radiance breaks the pattern, which surprised me. I was expecting, going into this part, to be reading... Oh my cat! Is that Severian? I just heard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He agrees, um, though. He's like, "Tell me about it, dude." <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, I, I expected to be reading Cosmere Ware letters going in. I didn't remember that the part two uh, epigraphs weren't letters, so that was that was a little jarring to me, and and maybe that played into, uh. You know, maybe that played into why I didn't like these as much, but uh, but I think there are bigger issues at play that I kind of elucidated earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, still going on with style, though. We'll be getting off the epigraphs here. I still want to talk about Brandon taking the time in this book here to, to really humanize our... or someone who is our principal antagonist for Words of Radiance, Toral Sadius. You know, we, we, yeah. we, in, in The Way of Kings, we already got that... The scene between he and... What, hold on. Was it in The Way of Kings? Wasn't it in part one of Words of Radiance? The scene between Ile and Sadius, and she's, like, caressing him, and he's got Oathbringer stabbed into the table. Oh, my God. I can't remember if that was just last part or before that. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, you, you, you do remember the scene, though. And yeah, yeah. In this scene, we have Sadius contemplating his age. He's contemplating his past, his his di- his dissatisfaction with their current predicament. There, we 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 even got a lot of his his reasons for marrying Ile in there. You know, too, she's dangerous, and to him, that is far more uh, more attractive than than any kind of physical beauty on the surface. But now, here in Words of Radiance Part Two, we have Chapter Twenty Nine where Sadius goes on this illegal uh, plateau run just to discard the, 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 the gem heart that he claims at the end of that one for, for winning that battle. And, and my favorite of these humanizing, I'll call them, moments of Sadius is one in particular that he has here again in chapter 29. While he's watching Adolin's duel, he's contemplating how damn uncomfortable he is in this frilly outfit that he's wearing and how deep down he wishes he could just stick to one uniform like Dalinar if only it wouldn't be sending the wrong message I just found it to be such an interesting way to approach setting up your villain on like on this podcast Drew you know we've we've read books with villains who are to, as you put it once, uh, a little mustache twirlingly evil. We've had yeah. super intimidating villains. We've had megalomaniacs, and, and uh, yeah, Sadius has a lot of these flavors. But Brandon's decision to show to show us who Sadius really is through his own eyes is a deft touch. These subtle moments of introspection, it, with, with like it, even this this affection between Ile and and Sadius there, like the the way he's constantly thinking about himself it's a trait that many antagonists sort of lack i think and because you know if if you really explore them in their humanity how could they really truly be that evil that's a whole other question for another time but i just want to say i like what he's doing with sadius and his viewpoints are all the better for how scarce they are i thought it was really well done yeah i mean to like peel this away from character and back towards style a little bit it's it's the the idea of a, a well-written villain is the hero of his own story. Yeah. And we see that with Sadius, you know, that he truly believes he is doing what he must do, what is the best for Alfkar, what is the best for his people, and uh, and 
he just doesn't have a conscience about it. <laughs> well, see, see, I, I find yeah. that though, like even that right there, um, the the hero, or I should say, the the antagonist being the hero in their own story, even that gets explored quite a bit in all the other books that we've done by the other authors that we've covered. Mm -hmm. But this self reflection, thinking about his age, thinking about his impending or his looming mortality, and and being dissatisfied and at least having to be, especially this theme of having to be honest with himself to himself. That is something I find really, really cool and something that I don't see particularly often in, in, uh, other antagonists. So I just, I, I really wanted to draw that point. I love, hmm. like, I don't want to say I love Sadius for that, but I love the character. I love how he's presented in that way. I, it, it makes him like, like I guess, like yeah. I said before, it I, gives I him mean, more humanity. We're, we're getting pretty deep into character here. Yeah, sorry. I, I don't have any character points about Sadius, which is why I just <laughs> threw that in here in style, because I want um, to talk about Brandon's decision to do that. But, I mean, I, I will say that's not unique. We have read villains on this podcast before who who have this sort of introspection. Uh, really? Characters like Milecoth and Raja Ten. Oh, but, hell no. I was re 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 referring but, to Milecoth when I was talking about megalomaniacs. Oh, for sure, yeah. But he, he you know... Hmm, we, okay. we see that with, you know, he has introspection. Okay. Uh, I remember, but, but you'll have to explain afterwards. Let's not get too off track here. It's my bad. Yeah, my, uh, my, my style point, you know, I brought up in, in the synopsis is that there are four interludes here. Uh, unless I'm forgetting something in Oathbringer, uh, Words of Radiance has two sets of interludes that, that have four. Uh, obviously, we you know we'll cover the next set next week, but none of the sets of interludes in Way of Kings have four; they all have three, and all of them in Oathbringer, I unless I'm misremembering, have three. And uh, I just thought that was really strange how he split up the Eshonai interludes here, made them one and you know I one and I four. Yeah, they're like bookends on these interludes. It's weird, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just I didn't remember that, and it's it is very interesting to me because so much of uh, the Stormlight Archive is very pointedly structured. Symmetry is a big deal in it. I mean, we we've even seen it to the point of the initials of the book titles, right? That you know it, it's become pretty common knowledge now uh, in the fandom that you know. The first book is The Way of Kings, T-W-O-K. The second book mm -hmm. is Words of Radiance, W-O-R. And then the third book is Oathbringer, O. And then the fourth book is Rhythm of War, R-O-W. And Brandon has said that he hopes to have book five no. follow that mirror. K-O-W? Uh, K-O-W, so probably K-O-W-T. Um, and so, you know, there's a bunch of, you know, a bunch oh of my God. speculation about what, what those initials could be, what the fifth book could be titled uh you know so there's there's a lot of intentionality in how these books are structured and so it's strange to me that that we have what seems to be an outlier with the interludes in words of radiance hmm. that that it, you know if if maybe the first set of interludes had had four and the second and third had three, and the fourth one had four. You get that symmetry going. But no, it's the first two that have four, and then the second two that have three in this book. It, it's strange. It's very strange to me. Hmm. And, and I wonder if that was just um, 
uh, a concession to his rigid structure that Brandon made because he felt, narratively speaking, he needed to split up the Eshonai, like, the interludes into smaller chunks uh, for narrative reasons. Um, but I, I would have to revisit that after the next set of interludes because I don't really remember exactly what happens in, in those two. Hmm. Uh, it, it, it's just that, that leapt out at me. It was a pretty big red flag outlier in okay. a rigidly structured series. Huh. Um, I would think that, I mean, I would just, if I were forced to chalk this up to anything, I would just say, uh, you know, he has to, he can't be completely symmetrical all the time. And I know you wouldn't say that he would have to, of course. But um, I, I would just say that this this could have been um, an artistic liberty he took. Maybe he just needed to... He realized at this point that he needed to explore Eshenai a little more. Or, or any other number of reasons to add one of these interludes in this part, an extra one. Um, well, you know? well, I mean, my point there is it feels like at least the first two Eshenai interludes, it feels yeah. like they could have been one interlude. Okay, yeah, I, I mean, know, I can like, see that. It, it, it still would have flowed. Yeah, but yeah. then I also like to say like this could be a slippery slope. If you're looking for that much symmetry, then at what point do you start counting the chapters and stuff like that? You know, like w at what point do we just say, okay, so he's gonna? Roam uh, I mean, free. I, 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 yeah, that would be taking it a step further. Certainly, right. it's just like the interludes are such a a standout thing. Mm -hmm. uh, they're they're uh, unique to Brandon. They're unique to. Uh, the Stormlight Archive, the way he's using them here, and so uh, that that definitely, yeah. I mean, he is Brandon Sanderson. You cannot dismiss anything that is an outlier, regardless as to how relevant or irrelevant it seems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see why you'd want to. Like, I didn't notice that, but if I had, I might have drawn a point to at least discuss it too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was my last uh, my last style point. I have a couple more here. Um. Let's see here. Okay, so I, I, this is, this this I wanted to talk about this with characters, but I don't, I can't find any particular point at which, you know, during the character discussion to bring this up, and because I'm going to be gushing so much about just the style of how this entire scene was paid off, I'll bring it up here in the style discussion. The ending of part two, the mm -hmm. one who hates this, like oh. with its narrative flair and how much it stands out from the rest of the scenes leading up to this like immediately you know you know what i'll back up one more step here going into words of radiance i had assumed that our big showdown if you will between kaladin and zeth would be happening at the end of the book which is what i was waiting for i was not ready however to see zeth son son volano Truthless of Shinovar and Assassin in White show up in part two. His yeah. entrance is just so damn epic on top of how unexpected it was. And it's we're only like a third of the way through the book at this point. Mm -hmm. Everything in this chapter, number 32, is pure gold. <laughs> and the astute reader for with, with appropriate context might see what I did there. Uh, but the, the first line to the last it's this is an entirely different beast from every other chapter in this book he absolutely he being sanderson just nailed this horror element i have never been so scared while reading a book never there was one time i came very close while reading terry goodkind's chain fire and i don't know if i'll ever get a, a chance to elaborate on that on this podcast but Unlike. this one sorry were you about to say something there unlikely unlikely <laughs> yeah 
Uh, I'll agree with that. Unlikely. But this one here, this scene, this takes the cake, not only for how well this horror element is established, but how it, it absolutely pays off. Even though we have had enough viewpoints from Zeth in The Way of Kings to know that he is ultimately a man. Our mm -hmm. characters don't know that. And with how strictly but still deftly Sanderson manages to, to, to play this third-person limited viewpoint here, we can still suspend that disbelief. When that bald-headed figure silently, eerily steps out from around the bend, he's dragging the blade through the stone, he's glowing with stormlight, and then Syl whispers those two words that pierce right through you, he's here. You know, you can forget in that moment that this is just a man. This is death made manifest. It's strange, it's terrifying and it's alien all over again yeah it, i i had a, a similar reaction the first time i read this book being blown away that brandon had the the balls to have zeth show up to assassinate delinar so early in the book and 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 have such a climax to part two uh, this is one of those reasons why I think a lot of people like this book more than The Way of Kings, in, especially in terms of pacing. Part two of this is very fast-paced. It's on fire, yeah. Yeah, part one is very short, and part two is super fast. And, uh, and, and that's just not the case in The Way of Kings. In The Way of Kings, the first part and the second part both act as part ones. Because they cover different characters, essentially. You know, uh, Shallan is in part one and not in part two. And then uh, Dalinar and Adeline are in part two, but not in part one. So, narratively, he's kind of covering a lot of the same ground in part one and part two in Way of Kings. But in, in this book, he's just, you know, he hits the ground running and he gets to just go, go, go. And, whew. Yeah. Great result. Yeah, I, I legitimately put the book down at the end of this chapter. Pardon me. <clears throat> Got a bubble in my throat. You know, when 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 Kaladin tackles him through the wall or the the missing part of the wall, like I was still on my first read through at this point. I remember this day so clearly, but this this chapter, despite not wrapping not quite wrapping up the immediate threat, it left me almost catatonic. I re I remember this day so clearly, dude. I put the book down, I got up, I walked through my bare ass apartment in college i turned on the coffee maker i mixed my mug i sat down i took a sip i stared at the wall <laughs> and i just went holy f you know and i was also in shock in denial that kaladin just had his arm severed by zeth's own blade you know and seeing us i mean take a step backwards again seeing two of the greatest duelists on Roshard, Dalinar and Adolin Colin, just manhandled like that, as well yep. as our secretly magic power-wielding protagonist, Kaladin Stormblast. Just manhandled by Zeth like that. It was just superb. It was just, oh my, what a scene. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty freaking incredible. Yeah. So that wraps up all of my style discussion for this week. Okay. Uh, let's let's go into Kaladin first here. Cool. So, so Kaladin, he's still on this downward spiral and it is tough to watch we're we're getting the first glimpses of this pernicious failing of his at least in terms of devotion to his oaths when they don't particularly suit him or, or maybe if you if you believe the the Stormfather, this the pernicious equivalent in all men there's there's a moment when adolin and in chapter 18 bruises he taunts kaladin to which kaladin responds by deciding 
you know what, this can only be dealt with using my fists. And as, as a younger reader, I was a little confused by comments I'd read from other fans, you know, saying how frustrated they are with Kaladin's decisions, some of his decisions in this book. There's another moment coming up in, in part three or four, I think it's part three that I'll get to then at that point as well, that pissed off a lot of people. And I, at the time, as a first reader, I didn't quite get the indignation from the fandom. Um, yeah, I was. I mean, back then I was arguing, yes, these are snap decisions made in the heat of the moment, and Kaladin is a passionate individual at times. But more and more, I'm finding now that that excuse just doesn't hold water. It it was a little terrifying, as a first-time reader at least, to see Kaladin's powers just completely and unexpectedly leave him. You know, and then and still make sure to drive that point home, asking him, well, who are you protecting? You know, which mm -hmm. again is making me stop and go, oh, oh my God, okay, uh, and, and that kind of terrified me a little bit too. But I'm I'm definitely seeing what a lot of fans were so frustrated with Kaladin about, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So with Kaladin, I I found this part interesting because uh, it it continues covering a lot of the same ground that we got with him in part one. Uh, you know, it's a lot of him getting settled, uh, a lot of him learning how to adjust to his new life, not as a bridge man, but as a, um, a, a guardsman for Dalinar. And it's, it's really only in the last maybe three or four Kaladin chapters in this segment that we get some movement on his character arc, where we start seeing, you know, he, he attacks Adeline on the battleground. And like you brought up, you know, he loses his Stormlight and it still says, you know, who are you protecting? You know, we, we have that little hint dropped, you know, that something's not right. And and Syl says several times, you know, she's mm -hmm. like, I, I thought you would have changed. I thought you would have gotten better. And he's like, oh, well, I have gotten better. And she's like, no, I thought you would have gone back to who you were before the bridge cruise. And Kaladin says, no, that, that man is dead. You need to stop wanting me to be that man. And But but that's the man that Syl bonded, you know? that's Of course that's who she wants him to be. Because he was the one who drew her out of the cognitive realm in the first place, right? Mm. And yep. uh, That's her, her earliest memories, she says, are, are of him during those days. Yeah, and, and so it's it's a really neat, subtle indicator of what Kaladin's character arc is going to be like. Because it's easy to focus on Kaladin uh, at the beginning of this as being like, okay, he needs to adjust to uh, being around Light Eyes now. And, and he needs to adjust to, to being a, a real soldier again. And then this is a little more subtle of who Kaladin is. It's, it's his internal change here. That is the the key focus that we're going to have going forward. Uh, yeah, and and I like that. I I, I enjoyed Kaladin's chapters here. Um, the horse chapter was eh. monster or monsters. Uh, yeah, I actually yeah. liked it. I actually liked it a lot. <laughs> um, not my favorite. I know it's it's uh, kind of a fan favorite in the community. It's not terrible. Uh, there are parts of it that I like. Um, I know some people ship Kaladin with the Stable Master. Yeah, I was going to talk about that in my miscellaneous once we get our spoiler gloves uh, off, just because, you know, I was going to say, you know, we, we don't get any of that in no which I'll censor now, but yeah. I yeah, was going to talk yeah. about that in miscellaneous. Janet. Right. Yeah. Janet, however you want to pronounce it. Yeah, I, I said Janet. Yeah. But, 
Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I didn't have a whole lot left for Calden after that, other than to just kind of reiterate what you said yeah. about how freaking great those last couple chapters are oh with him. Oh my god! Oh my god! But just just taking one more step back here, or at least I should say three or four minutes back here, uh, and and just to like take more into context we even have this this conversation if you want to call it that this i should say this exchange between kaladin and the Stormfather right before zeth arrives i think i think it was immediately before zeth arrives uh no yes. no well i think there was that but there was also this this moment where the Stormfather is calling kaladin on already starting to to waver in his his yeah, yeah that's that was that's the, the same same scene. same scene okay i'm starting to th- for yeah. some reason i'm starting to think it's two different scenes it was the same scene okay and um, i mean he can... even tells kaladin you're gonna le- murder my daughter and leave her corpse for wicked men kaladin's like i would never do that you begin it already you know it's like yeah oh, yeah it's yeah i mean there's um uh you know, the, we can tie this back to what we talked about in the way of kings episodes um and with Dalinar's visions, how every time Kaladin has this vision, uh, and when he talks to the Stormfather, it's during a high storm. Yep. And and so he that chapter, uh, you know, the one who hates, it opens with Kaladin dreaming yeah. this and talking with the Stormfather, and then he wakes up and he has this bad feeling, and you know, and he's like, yeah. I gotta go. I gotta go take my post to guard, you know, it's like... He comes there's, you, little traitor. Yeah, yeah. There, the, um, the, the number of key points in this that happen during High Storms, man, like, there's... Yeah. It's, it's because yeah. that's the perpendicularity. It's, it's like, when, yep. when, when the three realms yep. become one, <laughs> interesting things happen all the time. I love it. But, uh, yeah, that wraps mm-hmm. up everything I want to say about Kaladin for now. I'm ready to head into Shallan or Adolin. I'm going to keep switching back and forth between Adolin and Adolin, because I hear you pronouncing Adolin, and it looks like it should be Adolin. But the audiobooks, I swear to God, are Adolin, I think. Oh, my God. I don't know which one it is now. Oh. Uh, yeah, I say Adolin. Um, but, but, yeah, uh, let's, let's start with Adolin. Okay. Because we don't, we don't have a ton of him here, but we do have some. Uh, specifically around the duels, and mm. I love this aspect yep. of the storyline here. I'm yep. a huge fan. I I like how Brandon um, uses the duels to show us who Adeline is, and and that he has more depth than maybe apparent. Uh, the fact that each of the duels is different because Adeline is specifically making them different. The first one, he's just like. Screw the traditions. Screw the niceties. I'm just gonna go wreck this dude. Yeah, it's the second one. Right there. The second one, he's like, I'm gonna toy with this guy. I'm gonna make it look like it's a challenge. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it a, a longer bout than it should have been. And in doing so, for the people who really know, that will prove to them, look, this guy is for real. You know. And for the people who don't know, the people who aren't on my level, well, they're just going to think that I'm not as good as I am, and they're going to want to duel me, and I'll win more shards. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's such a clever move. Yeah, I mean, there's think about how much extra excitement it gains, and how much more conversation it gains in, in the Dark Eyes, probably. Like, you'll have, he, like, he's also, he knows how to work the crowd and make them want more. I, this, I love seeing this side of him. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's like he's such a great character too. Like everything, everything about him in parts two and three is just for me. It's fun. It's not like the Lopin or the Lift kind of fun, but it's the kind of fun that, as 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 a young man, you know, when I first read this, and I'm still a young man now, I can wholeheartedly and unashamedly cheer for. And this is Adolin in his return to dueling, official dueling, ranked mm -hmm. dueling. This this decision to remove the lock from his scabbard, so to speak, and to shame the high princes. That's what this is about. This is about shaming them as well as disarming mm -hmm. them. I just latched onto that, just like uh, it sounds like you did. Uh, even because you know a lot of things were threatening to overwhelm me in this in my first read through. We have all these different plot lines kind of circling around one another, but not quite meeting yet. Everybody has their own struggles that they're not really talking to one another about, except right. for this one. And you know, with our other characters, you know, they're interesting, but I just ah, I I love this part with with Adolin. I just it's it's so much fun. And, yeah, and, and there's sorry, go ahead. I, well, there's one other key bit of character development with him that we don't really see until now and that is his relationship with his shard blade yeah we got little hints of it you know little tiny hints of it in the way of kings but this is the first scene where he see him with his pre-dual ritual where he talks to his shard blade you know when he he has this um this strange sensibility around it, which makes sense. It's it's logical as he lays it out that, you know, of course, why would I name my shard blade? Somebody else, you know, this shard blade belonged to a knight radiant thousands of years ago. That They're the ones who named it. Why would I name it? Like, I, I don't have the right to do that. It's mm. It would be a false name. He's a little you know, more reverent, so he, yeah. He does. Yeah, he has more reverence. And uh, it, it's... It's just another layer to Adeline. And in this sense, I want to draw a comparison to Matram Coffin from The Wheel of Time. Matt right. and Adeline, on the surface, seem like, you know, the maybe kind of jokesterish, party boy, ladies' man, you know, like really good in duels, you know, very, very talented. And, and it would be easy to see them as shallow. But as you get to know them more and more, and as you dig into their points of view more, you realize there are layers. There are layers upon layers to them. And there are different people underneath each layer. And I love that. Mm -hmm. Matt is my favorite character in The Wheel of Time. And uh, I think it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. Without going into spoilers, one of the biggest criticisms uh, people have about Brandon Sanderson's writing in The Wheel of Time is how he wrote Matt. It's fair. It's fair. It it is. It is a fair criticism, and I think it's because. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's because he approached writing Matt, not in the way he approached writing Adeline, but more in the way he approaches writing a character like Wayne or yeah. Cody. Yeah, the Reckoners. I, I meant it was just a you fair. Know? Yeah, I meant to say I should have specified. It's a fair comparison. It's a very fair comparison. I hadn't considered it, but I. I mean, I, I agreed with every single thing you just said. That's it's. It, that was <laughs> that's a good point. You know, and I just I want to reiterate how why I'm so excited reading these duels from Adolin's point of view is because we know how long he has been waiting for this. He has yeah. been pestering his father to allow him to duel, or you know, and, and to to see him get to, you know 
finally get to do what he wants to do, what he loves to do, what he's the best at, and do something so useful for his house. I mean, it's just, it's, it's nothing but rewarding. And I feel like I'm a little guilty saying this, like just saying that I love Adolin so much and just reading all these fun points of view for it, because I feel like more might be expected of me with this amount of reading that I've done, self-professed, and I'm still, you know, I'm trying to cling to the vestiges of anything resembling objectivity in my review of Brandon Sanderson, <laughs> but I, I keep thinking about that sheer excitement while reading these dueling sequences, especially for the first time. I have those vivid memories, and I've realized that, you know, ultimately, this, this is what I claim is the best sign of best writing, to bring that visceral physical response from the readers like the like the response i had when when getting to see adolin wreck these smarmy arrogant self-indulgent <laughs> kremlings that are the alethi nobility in aggregate you know it's fun yeah, nothing yeah. but fun it, it it is it certainly is and this plays into um you know i talked about this criticism uh, previously with Well of Ascension and I've compared Words of Radiance to Well of Ascension and Way of Kings to Well of Ascension and how um, I don't like the pacing in the first half of Well of Ascension even though there's a lot of action and it's because the action felt pointless in Well of Ascension in Words of Radiance once again we have a lot of action early on but it's not pointless there's character growth involved there's real plot development involved instead of having uh, you know, not to spoil anything, I, I'll, I'll just you know use broad terms here. Instead of having a rehash of the same action scene six or seven times, where nothing substantial changes after each one of them, here we we have with these duels a rehash of the same action scene, but it changes. Not only does the action scene change, but the uh, the implications and the consequences of yeah. these action scenes change. The the story moves forward because of them. And and that's one of those signs of how Brandon just continues to improve as a writer. And mm -hmm. Adeline is a, a brilliant example of that. Amen. I don't think he could have written Adeline Colin as he is right now, I don't think he could have written him in 2007 or 2008 when he was writing Elantris or, or Mistborn. He needed to learn. He needed to grow as a writer. And to be honest, I think writing The Wheel of Time helped a lot with that. Yeah, well, I think that's very clear. I mean, he's talked at length about how much The Wheel of Time helped him in, in, in pretty much every way experience can help somebody. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, mm -hmm. I mean, it's stark. It's right there. It's right on the page. You can see it for yourself. It's, it's plain as long as you know what to look for. I agree. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, but that was my last point on that. Yeah. So let's, uh, discuss some Shalon. Yeah. And I'm really curious about this because last week you were saying you, <laughs> you know, you really wanted to kind of go in on Shalon. And I'm curious if that is this part or if it's something in the oh, future. That was the last part. I mean, I, there's there's a there's a couple minor complaints I have today, but really, you know, not much. Um, I, I okay, do have yeah, a little more positive to say too. That's good because yeah, last week you said that you had more you were going to complain about her in the future. In yeah, it won't be on these episodes. And I was there'll be okay. some more in like I think it'll be part four or part okay. five. One of the oh, I think it'll be part five actually. Yeah. Um, all right, all right. But you know, yeah, I, I, go ahead. I loved her in this in this segment. This is some of the best Shalon so far, in my opinion. Uh, th this is up there with with uh, part three in Way of Kings, I think. Damn. 
I definitely preferred part three of The Way of Kings. Uh, but, you know, like, I mean, I did my fair share of complaining about Shalon last week. That's that's most of the complaining I'm going to do. Um, we're still stuck in the middle of my least favorite plot line of hers. This, And I've gone on record for saying that I think this entire Frostlands and traveling to the Shattered Plains sequence, to me, it just kind of, it feels, again, to me, like this sort of tasteless filler just to get Shalon on scene in Natin Natin. And... Uh, I will say, though, I'm starting to see her a little differently as a person this time, particularly with one moment she has where she opens her mouth to insult Bluth, and then she decides mm -hmm. not to. I actually stopped playing the audiobook there when I was on my walk last week, and I thought to myself, I thought, oh, okay, maybe her character growth isn't only about confronting the lies. Maybe there are other things that she can change about herself in the meantime, and I just haven't been paying close enough attention. And so that's what I've started doing. I'm paying attention for more of these moments where she, I don't know, where her inhibitions will actually save her a little bit in social discourse, or I should say in social conduct. <laughs> you know, like... For uh, sure. This, though, I did refer last week to, to one particular moment that I found to be really predictable, though, with this Frostland sequence. I'll elaborate that now, finally. Um, about five hours after the book was released, I came to this scene. And this is the scene where Shallan is sketching Bluth in this heroic light. My uh -huh. first, on my first read, my first thought was immediately, oh, okay, so how long until Bluth sees this image? And he has, like, a serious, introspective moment. And so I started looking for it immediately and we get one point i think it was the bandits were just about to attack and shallan notices bluth pausing and looking down at a sheet of paper and i just smacked my forehead like oh come on really we still not gonna get there and of course once he dies shallan is just discovering that he had taken that portrait and 22 year old me is literally gripping my hair in frustrations like it was so obvious that th that little moment just really pulled me out of the book and if I'm being Man, honest, it, it kind of taints a large part of my opinion of this sequence. That is like a diametrically different reaction than I had. Really? I, I didn't, I, I expected something like that to happen with him. I, I thought that from the moment she was drawing that depiction of him, that we would see him in a more heroic light. But that didn't take away from it. That, if anything, that made it better for me. I, I thought it was so touching how how uh, we saw Shalon's depiction of him make an impact on I, this guy. And, and that. how that's a, that's a, and this is why I don't see this as filler at all, just to get her to the Shattered Plains. This is such a pivotal moment in Shalon's character development, because not only do we see her learning about illusion and lies and, and being a con artist and her light weaving, but this is her exploring the transformative power that yeah. she has, mm -hmm. not only as a as a light eyes, but as a surge binder. And and I think there's something to be said for uh, patterns. Uh, note that she has the surge of transformation, and soul casting isn't necessarily the only kind of transformation she can do. Yeah. And so I I was really touched by some of the oh. the moments in this. The no the, doubt. Her finding the the drawing that Bluth stole, um, uh, the the scene with Gaz, where he comes to get his likeness done, and she thinks about how many of the deserters have asked for yeah. it, and then Vatha uh, has like his little, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Vatha is still a bit of a problem at this point, but 
man, I I just I loved some of the the character moments with Shalon in this part. Yeah, I, I'm thinking I just perhaps didn't really explain myself very well because I, I agree with everything you just said. Well, maybe what I what I, I'll, I'll maybe I'll just try explaining in a different way. It was just the predictability of in in the fact that we weren't supposed to realize this is like what Bluth was doing because I was already ready to see him see himself. As soon as I she started drawing that picture, my first thought again, my first thought was like, oh, so he's going to see this and it's going to change him a little bit. When is that coming? And so that one little detail, that throwaway detail we got right before the hit the proverbial fan and he's looking at this paper and Shalon doesn't know what it is, but I already know exactly what it is. And so the fact like, in that moment, I was kind of pulled out of it just because I realized what was happening, even though it wasn't spelled out clearly. It was like we're pushing, we're still pushing it off a little more. Um, but as far as like what it means for those characters, for both of them, you're absolutely right. It was endearing on the part of Shalon. I, I love the fact that she doesn't only have the ability to transform objects, but to change people for the better and to, and to help mm -hmm. them view themselves in a more positive light and make them want that change. Like, I do love that she can do that. And it's, like I said, it's very endearing. And I, it was a very touching moment for Bluth, too. Like, I, I, I agree that that character had a decent arc for what little it was. It was just the predictability of how that was going to be revealed and the fact that it was, there was that little detail in the middle, but it was still pushed off. And I was like, okay, let's, I see what's happening. It was just See, a little yeah, predictable. I, I didn't. I didn't have a problem with that at all. If anything, I saw it as more of like a you know an instance of dramatic irony, or or simply. Okay, uh, I didn't see. Uh, it. I didn't actually look at it that way. That's a good point. You know the my familiarity with the kind of writer and the kind of way Brandon Sanderson develops his plots. Where if I had read this book early on, if if I hadn't read Elantris and Warbreaker and Mistborn Era One and you know all this beforehand. Maybe I wouldn't have picked up on that because oh, I wouldn't have noticed uh, it as the kind of thing Brandon likes to seed in as foreshadowing. You know, uh, I don't know. I, I just didn't have a problem with it there. Yeah, it was just um, it's, it's just it's just a personal taste thing. I'm not going to say it really. Yeah, yeah. It's, it yeah. reflects on the, on the author at all. It was just <laughs> for me. It was uh, the fact that something that was predictable came to pass. I was like, ah, come on. yeah, yeah. It's just what I'm looking okay. for. That's a problem with what I'm looking for, really. Um, that wraps up all of my character discussion points, though. I'm ready to go on and take our uh, spoiler gloves off if you want to jump into Miscellaneous. Yes, let's do it. Okay, so spoiler gloves are off. If you haven't read the rest of The Cosmere, I suggest skipping to the end of the episode and listening to the final draft. <laughs> yeah. You want to give us a start? What do you want to start with? Ooh, let's start with Yim and <laughs> the Iriali <laughs> Long Trail. Yeah. Uh, so this is very firmly in the realm of speculation at this point, uh, except the one thing we do know, we have confirmed from Word of Brandon, is that the, you know, the, there's this idea of the long trail and that they're in, was it the, the fourth land? The third or the fourth land? Oh my gosh. Oh my god, I, I'm start. I feel like I'm, I should be right away with this. I think Roshar is the fourth land. The, I remember thinking this yes, three yeah, more to come. Yes, it's the fourth land. Yes, yeah. the fourth land. Um, but that... For sure, each of these lands are different planets in the Cosmere. Oh, damn. Yes. Uh, and and given the particular genetic traits of the Iriali, mm -hmm. with the golden hair, uh, it is likely, I will say, uh, not confirmed, but likely, 
that one uh, one of the previous lands was Nalthus, mm-hmm. and that there is some intermingling of the uh, royal locks. Yeah, in Adrian the Eriali nobility, uh, yeah. uh, genetic, genetic yeah, uh, genetic trait there. Um, and and then the other big theory about this, you know, is the whole Eriali religion is centered around the one. You know, this this all powerful being, all knowing being who splintered itself in order to experience everything. It knew everything, but it hadn't experienced anything. So it splintered itself, it shattered itself into millions and millions of pieces, and each piece is a person, and their life is gaining experience, and when they die, they will return to one with everything else, and then one will have experienced everything there is to experience. Uh, of course, there are some pretty clear parallels here with adenalcium. There's a, a pretty solid theory to be made out of that, that adenalcium may have been willing in the shattering. Uh, it, it may not have all been just the 16 are opposing adenalcium, and adenalcium is opposing them and trying not to trying not to get shattered. It, it may have may have been a little more willing than we think. But uh, oh, man, we're getting so meta now. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're I mean this is this is the neat thing about the Stormlight Archive. This is the first series, the main series, where we're getting real Cosmere meta story uh you know Progression? information. Not not just little tidbits the way we got in in CZ's epigraphs in uh, the Hero of Ages or, or whatever. We're or getting random things real that information. Yeah. Uh, and I, unfortunately, we can't talk about the <laughs> the letters or the letter in this book today because, like I said, I, I was so blown away. I, I thought for sure all of the letters were in part two epigraphs. We could talk about the letter. We're in the spoiler-free discussion. It just you know, it wouldn't be really like no, this but, part but of it's the book, not, though. Not yeah. this part of the book, yeah. Um, it, it, it was just very strange to me because, yeah, like the letter is in part two in Way of Kings, the letter is in part two of Oathbringer, and I could have sworn the letter was in part two of Words of Radiance. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I, I have got some more shandy wraps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I have one, one more little, uh, hmm. I've got a lot actually. <laughs> Uh, one, I'm really surprised you I gotta one. make sure it was in this part, though. I gotta make sure it was in this part because I think it was. Can I get? Oh, was it about a, a certain? Yes. Okay. Little... Yeah. It, it. It was. Uh, it's Nas. Yeah. Yep. That's yeah. where I was going with this. Yep. Hello, yeah, Nas. I wrote that down. He's he's got a, a brief unnamed appearance. He is the ardent who keeps trying to like sketch the bridgemen, and Rock keeps chasing him off. And, and he's like, I don't know, man. Ardents are weird, but. He's not yeah. ardent. He is, he's our good old James Bond of the Cosmere. So yep, yep. And he's not the only uh, world hopper, you know, that we uh, re- we recognize at this point. If you're really paying attention mm-hmm. for what certain characters are saying, hello, yes, Basher. Indeed. Hello, how's it going, my man? Basher. <laughs> Could you imagine what his? Re- what do you think his response would be if you if you actually said that to him to Basher? Like, what's it going, my man? How is it? Oh, if if like some character strolled into the training ground, you know the. Uh, in the war camps, and yeah. and he comes trotting out, and, and some guys like, "Oh, Vasher, what's going on?" Vasher just be like, 
Oh. Vasher, bro, <laughs> haven't seen you in ages. <laughs> he would he would definitely just curse and be like, ah, uh, you know. He'd be he'd be very very tempted to strike you in the throat for that one, probably. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so yeah, we have we got Naj, we've got Vasher arriving on scene. Um, <clears throat> a little quote here I wrote down. I wanna I wanna get your take on this. Kaladin watched the window shutters. Motion came in bursts. First yep. stillness. Yes, he could hear a distant howling. The wind passing through some hollow, but nothing nearby. A tremble. Then wood rattling wickedly in the frame. Violent shaking. Yeah, violent shaking with water seeping in at the joints. Something was out there in the dark chaos of the high storm. It throunded. <laughs> it thrashed and pounded on the window, wanting in. Light flashed out there, glistening through the drops of water. Another flash. Then the light stayed, steady, like glowing spheres, just outside, faintly red. For some reason, Kaladin couldn't explain. He had the impression of eyes. You want to take that one and run with it? What do you think? Uh, I mean, my impression always was that this is uh, a void spren. Okay. That the the transition from Braze has already begun and that this is a void spren looking for a a, a, a singer a body. Maybe, yeah. Um, okay. However, it could be... You, you could take this a step further. This yep. could be a, what we call a Sprachus from Elantris. A faceless immortal, perhaps, from Mistborn Era oh. 2. Okay. One of these, one of these demons, these spren, who will take over human bodies. Even, I mean, it's in the it's in the storm though. Mm-hmm. For the perpendicularity. To... Yeah, I'm just talking about like physically being able to stand in one spot during 600 mile per hour winds. If it's in a physical body. No, well, it's looking for a body. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Sorry. Yeah, that yeah. Just <laughs> went over my head there. Like, see, I, what I took this as originally, like, I kept thinking, this is, oh, this is one of the first of the storm form Parshendi, perhaps. One of Venli's researchers who's, like, already taken on the new form, perhaps, and is, like, spying on what's going on here in, in a very, very important place. But I'm, the more hmm. I think about it, I'm, I'm not sure how the timelines match up. Uh, I don't Ashenai think didn't, so. Yeah, yeah Ashenai, Ashenai hasn't done that yet transform for the first time for herself or another part yet i'm not a, one of the like hardcore timeline people uh but i could i could reach out to a, a, a person or two and and see if we could dig up what the timeline is between this yeah. high storm or if you just know and, it and you're listening uh, so because what i think this is is this high storm when that happens with where kaladin is seeing this that's the same high storm that esher and i goes out in the first time and okay. bonds it and she's the first one to do it so so I, we know that venley or neither or none of her researchers took that form first when they found the void spread i'm pretty sure they didn't okay i mean i haven't heard anything like that but I because the whole thing was like it was it was an experiment at that point and esh and i was like no i will be the one to do the experiment well i think yeah I guess I guess the only response to that would be like, well, maybe Venli was hiding the fact she didn't want them to know that she had already done that. But I mean, you, how would you hide something like that? Or, or like, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, it's very flimsy. I'll admit. 
Um, yeah, I'm fairly certain Eshonai is the first one to uh, assume storm form okay. among the listeners. Okay. But hey, if we're uh, wrong and you're listening to this and you know better, throw us a comment. Let us know. <laughs> uh, I have one last little little sentence. Okay. And this is something Sil says. And, and this is another one of those really clever things that Brandon does where he seeds foreshadowing for one plotline into another plotline. And this is Syl talking with Kaladin. And she says, you know, uh, or, or sorry, not Syl talking with Kaladin, uh, uh, Pattern talking with Shalon, rather. Um, and Shalon is, is talking about how her feet are healing. And, and Pattern says, you know, I know almost nothing of why people break. I know less of why they unbreak. And Shalon says, your kind don't get wounded. And he replies, we break. We just do it differently than men do. And we do not unbreak without aid. Now, we have a plot line introduced in this, in this part of the book. Of Adeline talking to his shard blade. Oh. Oh, man. Nice catch. I didn't even consider that. Yeah. Holy <laughs> So Okay. And, and there, there are going to be some other things, uh, other little bits of foreshadowing uh, throughout Words of Radiance along this line that I'll be bringing up on, on later episodes. But that one, that one leapt out at me, especially this time. I may have had to read this book ten more times before I would have caught up on that. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, let's see here. Uh, oh, on the subject, since I, you know, my next point immediately following the first one is still on the subject of Kaladin noticing things. Mm. He, uh, he clearly notices something is wrong. Of course, it's pretty obvious right before Zeth attacks for the first time. Yes. I assume this here is because somehow odium's nexus or his attention somehow whatever sub whatever is, stands in for it is focused in on this spot of roshard during this moment and we know like we can see odium is greatly influencing zeth and so zeth is inf like invested enough in some way to bring odium slash races att like direct attention with him in his presence and sill and pattern can feel odium's direct gaze through and yeah. through the nail bond you know yeah. Kaladin and Shallan can they can feel that something is seriously seriously wrong and about to happen. Mm -hmm. I, I think you're right on that. Uh, that because Zeth himself isn't, he's not an agent of Odium. He is not specifically, uh, you know, like he's not a fused or or an, he doesn't yeah. have an Odium spread involved with light or that kind of yeah. energy with him. Uh, but but he is of great interest to Odium, and. And this is a key point, especially with what we find out later in uh, Oathbringer. Odium is extremely invested in Dalinar, and Zeth is here to kill Dalinar. Hmm. So, uh, of course, Odium would be interested in seeing how this plays out. Because <laughs> yeah. I think, that, so this is my theory here, is that he has Dalinar obviously nailed he's like this guy is going to be my champion oh my but god but if zeth kills dalinar oh you're i think odium mind. was going to pivot and that and start in on zeth and using this as a key turning point for zeth 
to turn him into Odium's champion instead. And so Odium was very interested in how this night was going to play out. Oh, wow. You took that even a step farther than I was thinking. I was, I was thinking that you were, the point you were about to make <clears throat> would be to consider that since we know now Odium is so invested in Dalinar, even at this point in his journey, we uh, Odium may have actually, this is so weird to consider, Odium may have feared for his champion there. Yeah, which which, for which sure. is exactly what you said, and then expanded upon that and, and offered maybe he was about to switch, you know, his tools. Oh yeah. my god! Yeah, he just I just kind of I blew think my mind. That was, and and maybe if if there was indeed a Svrakis there that night, it was hanging around in case it needed to go meet Zeth and and uh, suborn Zeth. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's some food for thought. I'm going to spend some time digesting that one. Um, yeah. So, uh, still just a, f- a few more small points here. Uh, Navani isn't too concerned at first about uh, Yasna's lateness. She actually has one of her, one of, in my opinion, her greatest one-liners ever. And, um, you know, anyone with, with the context as a, you know, as a long reader, long-time reader right now, you can appreciate this little bit of flavor that Brandon throws here with this line... Batar send that girl some sense to go with her intelligence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that line. I love that line so much. Um, Rissen, the Rissen interlude with the Reshi Great Shells. Moments like this are why Stormlight as a whole have this place in my heart as a reader. This, the sheer immensity of these creatures is daunting. It's fantastical. It's intimidating. Just imagine the size of those gem hearts. And I also wrote down, let's make sure nobody tells the Alethi about these things. Yeah. Could you imagine all the shard, all the shard bears in the kingdom trying to take one of these things down? <laughs> well, I mean, the Alethi know about them. A Do lot they know of people about them, outside though? of the Reshias know that they're. Yeah, I mean, there are Alethi. I mean, I guess there, there are Alethi who went to go join the Reshi. Oh yeah, but maybe Risen specifically. Yeah, you're right. It's flimsy yeah. ground. Yeah, but I but, mean, but I think it's more just like a, a matter of effort. Yeah. Um, the they may not even know or they may not have like because they only recently found out about the gem hearts and the chasm fiends right right and and they've been totally focused on that so they may not even have made that intuitive leap yet to think oh oh there's these other great shells over there uh, we could we true. could go after them too yeah. uh, but Although weren't the lancerin hunted to extinction who did that well, that might have been, oh, whatever. That, that, that might be irrelevant. Yeah. I, uh, I, I'm going to avoid talking about the Risen interlude. Okay. Other oh, than to I, say sure. that I love the Risen interlude, and Risen is absolutely, like, one of my favorite, if not my single favorite side character in... The Stormlight Archive. I, I think Sweet. she's wonderful. I, I mentioned that in, in Way of Kings when we did those episodes and we had uh, the Risen interlude there. She is just a delight to read. I, I, I love her. And <laughs> I cannot wait until Dawn Shard comes out so we can do that episode. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, I've got a little theory to propose about Tin. 
the woman who decided Ooh. to take Shalon in under her wing. And I, I, I'm fairly certain that we've discussed this, you and I, at some point earlier, Drew. Uh, but that's, I'm only, like, I'm 70 to 80% certain of that. And even if we did, it would have been years and years ago. So this okay. is what I'm proposing. Tin was an Invisager. In one of the scenes before Shalon kills her, this this might have been earlier in that same scene. I, I don't I didn't read that particular chapter again for today's discussion. I'm just going off memory here. She laughs at Shalon's shyness and her propriety when she's she's mortified and blushing with the, the thought of showing mm -hmm. her safe hand, and she's poking she being tin at this point is poking fun at all these proprieties. But then at one point she goes kind of cold and distant, and she says, and I quote, "Showing your hand off isn't going to be the toughest thing you have to do." Not by a breeze or a storm wind. I... And then she trails off. And then Shalon's... What? And Tin just she shakes her head. We'll talk about it later. Um, and, you know, she, she, she changes the subject. She goes, do you see those war camps yet? And Shalon steps up, looks around. Oh, yeah, I see them. Uh, but I, I... There it is. Tin, I think, was not one of the Envisagers. This cult that was trying to attain control of the Surges or control the Surges themselves uh, by putting their lives in danger. And perhaps they know more than we think that such a bond requires a spren and a bond that in a cracked soul, so to speak. She specifically says, that's not the hardest thing you're going to have to do. And she's looking all distant. She has the thousand yard stare. But what really makes me suspicious, and it might just be a quirk of having read so many Sanderson novels so many times, Shalon doesn't stop for clarification. She doesn't press her on it. You know, Tin puts her off and says nothing. We'll talk about this later, so I can clearly change the subject. And Shalon just takes it, hook, line, and sinker. She just like, oh yes, my attention is now diverted. I feel like it's kind of maybe like a proscribed reaction, you know, for the the reader as well. Like he kind of uses Shalon to just gloss over that just a little too swiftly, a little too subtly, and so I'm suspicious. Okay, my I, I'm confused of where you're getting the envisagers from here. The Invisagers are the ones... Teft tells a story about the Invisagers and how they yeah, were... Yeah, like, I, I know who they are. I just don't understand how they're connected to that line at all. The, not the hardest thing you're going to have to do. She might have to do some seriously life-threatening, life-changing things. Yeah, obviously. She's working for the Ghostbloods. Tin work, working yeah. for the Ghostbloods. Yeah, but she yeah. doesn't know that Shallan is... Oh, no, but, but she's trying to recruit Shallan in. Like, I, I just don't understand okay, what... Okay. what having dangerous things to do in your future why, why you go to the the envisagers there there are so many other well, different things that to can be mean. fair tin isn't working <laughs> with the the, the ghost yes she's, she is she was no, hired right. by like, the ghost she was, she was like contracted by them right but she's not one yeah. of them she doesn't have their mark no, does no she? she's she's not officially one of them yet but she knows she's working for them like she's and been she was in trying contact to bring Shalon in too, despite the fact that she's not part of one of the ghost bloods. Well, yet. she was clearly trying to become part of them. That's true because she was. That's be, that's because they had a job for her yeah. next. But okay, I, that's fair. I, You're I, right. It's I'm a bit of a stretch confused. for Invisager. Okay. Yeah, I'm just confused why you focused on in Invisager specifically. I'm a when, like, when when needing to go into a dangerous lifestyle could mean. A billion other different things. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was that cold and distant look, like it's traumatizing, or I don't know. Maybe it was the trauma that it looked like she was just like remembering, or that thousand yard stare. I, you're right. It, Envisager, when comparing to a much simpler, uh, yeah, might, yeah like Occam's might I just Razor, beg here. Occam's Razor. Here. I was just gonna say that. Yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it could be something a lot simpler. It probably likely is something a lot simpler. I yeah, don't yeah. know why I jumped to Envisager, but there was. Uh, yeah, I, I'd be curious uh, if, if there was, like, 
maybe I'll have to go back and reread and see if there are any other things. I, I, I will say when you, you quoted that line, not by a breeze or a storm wind. Mm-hmm. We've heard I that feel before. like, I feel like another character said that now, yep. if that other character who said it was Teft, maybe that's like a, you know, maybe that's a, a an invisible oh. specific thing. I don't know. Uh, it might just be but, a show or like a, <clears throat> yeah, like a... Because it definitely reads like just a, a regular old idiom. But if only two people said it and the two people are Tin and Teft, you know, maybe that's a tenuous connection you can make. But I can guarantee I you've heard it before, but you're right. I don't know who it was. <laughs> it would be really interesting if it was Teft. It, it would be. It would be. All right. Uh, um, I had I had one last line highlighted, and it's just a, a brief throwaway thing, and it's um, with Kaladin and, uh, you know, back in that... that scene when just before Zeth shows up uh, and he says you know darkness wind from the depths of nothingness battering him he felt as if he were standing above the void itself yep. damnation known as braze in the yep. old songs I am pretty sure this is the first time we get the name braze mentioned yes yeah I think it is so just a a, a note of curiosity mm. for me and I love how Braze is the planet upon which Odium is actually trapped, and Odium is a te- is very heavily focusing in on this yeah. instant on Roshar. Mm-hmm. I just yeah, I love that connection there. Um, you know, my my last is just about again about Janet. I said I was gonna ex- uh, elaborate. You know, the stable master. The first time she sees Kaladin, she looks him up and down, and she says, "I imagined you'd be taller." Or something like that. And to Kaladin, first off, who what is he like six foot two? Something uh, like, like that. Probably like six foot five. <laughs> no, he's not like Randolph Thor kind of height. Of course, they are a little taller. They are taller. Are yeah. Little... Damn. I'm pretty sure Kaladin's like super tall. <laughs> wow. I've been picturing him like six foot two or something like that. Because for me, I'm still super tall of my <laughs> short self. Um, so like right away, the, the the clear appraisal, looking him up and down. I imagined he'd be taller. That dismissive attitude. The fact that she, I'm pretty sure she's dark eyed, right? She's got like relatively low burst, even though she's a stable master. Uh, I thought she was a light eyes. She very well could be. I, for some reason, something's telling me she was dark eyed, and I. I okay, so I just looked it. it up. Questioner: How tall is Kaladin? Brandon Sanderson. Kaladin, I think, is six foot four. I'm not a hundred percent sure the equivalent. Like he is six foot four to Rosharans, which may actually put him wow. several inches taller than six foot four. <laughs> yeah, he's super tall. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, well, yeah. With 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 yeah. uh, Janet, we've, we've I think... got another one. He says so, like six foot four compared to someone else on Roshar, by but it's low gravity, high oxygen environment, which means he's probably more like six eight. My God, <laughs> he's a tall <laughs> dude, man. Okay, <laughs> wow. That's yeah, yeah. Significantly changed my head cannon there. Wow, it's gonna take some time to adjust. Um, so I'm just, I'm gonna propose that maybe Janet, she since with an ad, like an attitude that she's got, she she might have a larger part to play in the future. Uh, not for, we know it's not for the rest of this book or any of the next one going into Oathbringer, and we're going into Rhythm of War in a few weeks. I, I'm actually starting to ship Kaladin and maybe like Risen a little bit, but maybe if if Kaladin can't get his crap together and find a woman who can stand his personality soon, Janet might be the most viable character to to pay attention to. I think. So, you know, maybe she has a bigger part in Stormlight 6 to 10. I don't know. But I think she has a bigger part. I don't yeah, think we're so done with Janet. I, I did just look it up. Uh, she is described as a pretty young, light-eyed woman. 
Um, Good call. And, okay. and as Good for, call. like, I'm not a big one for, like, shipping characters or anything like that. Yeah, no, that's, but, that may be the first time I ever uttered those words in one sentence, yeah. But if Kaladin's going to end up with anybody in the Stormlight Archive, it better be Vivenna. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Zyle. Or Z what the hell am I saying? Uh, what the hell is Azure? This <laughs> is Zyle. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, not, not oh, Zyle. Oh, man. I just heard so I'm many listeners sure go, neither what? of them swing that way. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> there was absolutely oh, no uh, no signals there uh, that I can pick up on. You know, Azure. What? Okay, interesting. I can see it. Yeah. I can see it working. Yeah, yeah. Although, she's like what? She's got to be like close to thirty at this point, at least, right? Maybe in, um, maybe in her thirties. I mean, in uh, we're we're not entirely certain how many like how much she has physically aged. I mean, right. she's probably in terms of like pure time on Roshar she's like uh, 100, 150 but oh I, I don't know if we can really, you know, if we can really do that kind of comparison with world hoppers who take advantage of the time dilation effects uh, of of uh, Shadesmar so mm. yeah. <laughs> obviously she's not 150 years old physically no, no. speaking <laughs> no I wouldn't imagine so Although, I will she has a lot of breath yeah, she she definitely has a lot of breath. So, so she she could be effectively she, immortal. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, do you have any other lore points I to discuss? Don't think I do. Yeah, no, I'm good. That's everything for me. All right. So I think that brings us to the final draft. I think it does. Yeah, Rob, what are you drinking? Uh, I'm kind of ashamed to talk about what I'm drinking this week because I didn't get a chance to go to the store and for, for a part that I love so much and a book that I love so much, I'm sitting here drinking what is the second worst beer I've ever brought on the podcast and I have brought it on before. Oh, I'm just boy. drinking, you know what I'm drinking, I'm drinking Bush Ice. Oh, brutal. Although, yeah, I know, it is brutal. Uh, although I do have, if, if I think what is happening next part actually happens next part i'm going to have the perfect drink for the for the next episode so take that as as you will i i am formally seeding my uh my clever input for this week and i'm just adding it on to next week i'm just <laughs> drinking bush ice and i mean it's it's bush ice all right what about you well do? well i brought two beers so that'll uh That'll help uh, offset your bush ice, I guess. Sweet. <laughs> uh, first up is a uh, double dry hop to India Pale Ale with guava uh, from Anchorage Brewing Company, which guava. listeners will be very familiar with at this point. Um, this one goes out to Dalinar for being a complete badass when Zeth attacked. It is called Catch. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. I, um, I but, think of another part in this book where I would have preferred to put that, but go ahead. Uh, but my my other beer, this is the the big one. Very, very excited about this, and I have to give a little shout-out to a, uh, a friend of the podcast, Chris Martin, who shipped me this beer. His name is Chris from, Martin? I love that. From Florida. Uh, this is a tart wheat ale. With pineapple, guava, mango, tangerine, and passion fruit. Uh, it's from Ology Brewing Company in Tallahassee. Oh, that sounds and, so good. And I don't even need to explain this one. 
And in fact, many of our listeners may have already seen this beer make the rounds. It is called Reshi Isles. <laughs> oh my god! I remember seeing a screenshot. I thought that was like a Photoshop. I didn't think that was a legit brew. It is a, a real beer from Chris Ology Martin Brewing Company. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. That was an excellent, excellent addition. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. I agree. Been, is this 80... 85? 85, yeah. Um, yep. Yeah, so next up, we'll be continuing with Words of Radiance. We'll, doing, uh, we'll be doing the next set of interludes and part three. As always, if you want to support the podcast, check us out on Patreon. Patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey. And with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yeah, buddy. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye-bye, everyone.